This episode is a co-production by the RPG Academy and the Rollist. This panel is a recording of a stream on the Twitch channel of the RPG Academy. A video version is available on the YouTube channel of the RPG Academy and the Rollist. If you join our newsletter, for which you can find a link in the description of this episode, you will be informed in advance of future broadcasts. This way you could join us live on Twitch and contribute with your own question via our chat room. Hello, welcome for another Derodis present. This one is dedicated to one of my very favorite thing in the world, London, my hometown, the place I choose to spend my life. Oh, wait, wait a second, I'm twitching at the same time. I was watching on Twitch and I couldn't hear myself. Anyway, anyway, I found a bunch of sinners to discuss London today because none of my guests or myself realized it was Easter Sunday today when we picked the date. But there you go. Maybe, uh, maybe you had a nice Easter day or maybe you are about to have a lamb roast if you are in the US and it's 1 p.m. there. But uh, yeah, uh, Andrew, could you introduce yourself to the viewers? And what are your London credentials? Okay, I, I'm Andy Peregrine. I'm a freelance role-playing writer. Uh, I, although my other main job uh, is I work in the theatre in the West End of London. So I'm going Ooh, wow. it's, uh, off at the moment, obviously. Uh, I worked on Fall of London Thermodiphius, Vampire 5 supplement, uh, which was a load of fun to do. That's just released from Modiphius. And I also worked as the line developer for Victoriana, where we did the smoke uh, supplement, which was a London guide revising Scott Reimer's excellent work from there beforehand. Um, and at the moment, my current project is line managing on the Dune project for Modiphius, which is awesome, and I wish I could talk more about it. Ah, interesting. Maybe for, for another panel. Then we have a someone who's coming back to us. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Please introduce yourself, uh, Lynn. Hello, I'm Lynn Hardy. I'm the associate editor for Call of Cthulhu. I'm also the line editor for the upcoming Rivers of London role-playing game. I too have worked on Victoriana. I edited the third edition. Uh, and, oh, I've worked all over the place over the last years. Um, and once upon a time, I used to hate London, but I'm slowly learning to love it. Oh. I mean, yeah, you you need to find your corner of London. You've got mm -hmm. different places and to each their own places and you can have very different experience of the city depending if you are uh, a young student who, who wants to go out or someone like me who's more uh, now a father in a family and uh, you need to find somewhere, somewhere quite to enjoy life. Uh, uh, more in the more clubbing side, exciting, young, new things. Uh, we got Sean here who's the, the crowdfunding star, the, uh, the uh, what's it called mentored by, by Matthew Mercer himself. So, so tell Hello, us about that's, that's, that's introduction, introduction, Callum. Um, so my name's Sean. Um, as Callum said, I am the writer and creator behind the London Master's Guide, which is like the world's first fantasy tour book to a city that was crowdfunded uh, through Kickstarter last year. And although I've got a northern accent, I do consider London my home because I've lived here for 10 years. Uh, and, you know, the only thing that does, you know, great a bit is the price of beer because that never really, you know, leaves you really, no matter where you come from, because it's pretty expensive. It's very um, expensive. Mm. 
On the upside, when you go to places like Denmark, then and people tell you it's expensive, you go there and you're like, no, it's just the same price. So actually, it's not, it's not that expensive to go there. You you're very keen. Uh, you were telling us you're very keen to have the London Master Guide being up to date in its content. It's a challenge at the moment. Yeah, it's it's a little difficult at the minute because you know. Um, Obviously, we're all facing a little bit of a diff difficult time worldwide. Um, and I was just about to finish the first draft of the book and, like, you know, get it off and start finishing. And then uh, COVID happened. Um, and basically, I, we don't really know what the landscape will look like of London, you know, in the next coming months. And, you know, a number of places that I've put in the book, you know, specifically like businesses, pubs, like, uh, you know, theatres have closed. Um, and I've kind of made the difficult decision to delay it uh, because when I release the book, I want to make sure that it's actually a usable book. That's you know, because even even just I think there's a part in the book where you know I talk about like the adventurer's toolkit, what you need to go on a see. It's a little bit of a joke in the you know, it's like oyster card, uh, wallet, umbrella. But will I have to put a, a mask on it next year? Is if that is something that you know happens? So. It's a little bit challenging, a little bit stressful, but, you know, I want to make sure it's the best version that it can be. Um, and, yeah, back to the drawing board on some of it. Not all of it, though. Not all of it, because some of the places won't leave. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just a little bit of restructuring, I think. At least you don't need to redo all the awesome art I've seen. You don't need to add a uh, facial mask for all your, the drawings on no. there. <laughs> so getting away from uh, the uh, slight, well, quite dreadful news, uh, let's go to the fantasy world. The first section of our discussion will be dedicated as uh, to, uh, uh, to London as a setting for your stories. So if anyone's got specifically questions about that in the chat room, please Uh, tell us and I will try to follow them on my little phone on the side and ask them later. So, dear guest, from Charles Dickens to Fleabag, from Boudicca to Winston Churchill, James Bond to Killing Eve, Diagon Alley to Baker Street or The Folly, Dracula and Mr. Hyde, tell me about your favorite London-based fictional or non-fictional story or character. Doctor, what would be yours? Oh, um, well, it's going to have to be Sherlock Holmes, I'm afraid, going for the easy option. Um, I was raised on murder mysteries, um, Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie, Colombo, you name it. Um, so London, from being very small, was always about Sherlock Holmes and, and those stories. I think that's possibly why I was quite disappointed the first time I went down to London when I was very small, because it, it wasn't all Victorian and gaslit and Sherlock Holmes wasn't hanging around. Um But yeah, I would have to say Holmes, definitely. I, I do believe I'm possibly contractually obligated these days to mention Rivers of London, which I am very fond of, obviously, otherwise <laughs> I wouldn't have lobbied so hard to get the license. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, very much literary based, although at some point, if we have time, I might well tell you stories of the Doctor Who live role playing game that we did around there. I think it was about eight or oh, we were talking about this last night, about 18 years ago now before the series came back, which was when I actually started to really enjoy London. And that was an absolute hoot. I, I was very proud when I took on studies at the University of Westminster because my uh, school school was located at Maryland, uh, not Maryland Road, uh, what is it called? Oh, my memory escapes me, but the station is Baker Street Station. So I would get off there each time. There's the big statue of... 
Sherlock Holmes, you can go to Baker Street, the actual Baker Street, uh, from there. And yeah, London for me was, uh, one cartoon which was very popular when I grew up uh, as a child was Sherlock Hound, which was made by the Ayao Miyazaki before he did Studio Ghibli, My Neighbor Totoro, Spirited Away, and so on. And, uh, I just love that character. I think it's, it's, yeah, it was very an inspirational figure of being smart and uh, and defeating the bad guys this way, not through violence most of the time. And of course, the hilarious thing about the address of 221B Baker Street is that it didn't exist when Conan Doyle was writing. He specifically created an address that didn't exist so people couldn't go and visit it. And of course, it was only when all the street numbering and everything changed that 221B did come into existence. And for years, it was a bank. And I know they used to get fan mail and requests for assistance from homes, um, which, bless them, they actually used to answer as far as I remember. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I love the figure of Holmes also, how it's, yeah, uh, is it is fictional, but for a lot of people, there, there's this slight doubt whether or not he is being fictional. And that's the thing, you know, what's your... all over the place. So yeah. we've got Doctor Who crossovers with him. We've got numerous crossovers. He, I mean, obviously, he was used a lot during World War Two as a propaganda tool. The Basil Rathbone movies, a lot of them are sort of like rewritten stories, sort of like propaganda to boost Britain's morale during the war and all sorts of things. So it's it's interesting to see how his use has changed over time. We just get the key thing that people forget is, of course, that they weren't period stories when they were written. They were contemporary stories. Andrew, do you ever do you like Sherlock Holmes especially? I'm really bad. I've never actually read them. Loved Basil Rathbone. It's the same thing with me, and, and I'm ashamed to say, Lord of the Rings. That I've seen so much about them, I've never actually got round to reading the actual original source material. Um, I'm so bad with that one. Um, all right. So I'm going to hang my head in shame on that one. Like, I'm adding Rivers of London to my list, though, because that because everyone's talking about that at the moment. Um, sure, my, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say my my favourite sort of London centric things recent. Although I hate it, sounds almost a, a cliche to to suit pick books that are Victorian based because it's almost so hard to separate London and Victorian from each other. But as you were mentioning in your, your intro, there are so many things that are, I've got a London feel, you know, flea bag and all the other things. You go, yeah, these are all London, but you, it's hard to shift that Victorian feel to the city. I think that mostly because they built so much stuff with the empire. That was when they built all the stone buildings, and that's the bit that we've still kept. Um, but uh, one of my favourites, I have to say, is the Philip Pullman's Sally Lockhart series, um, which are mostly London-based, um, and she's a... Sort of, sort of detective thing. She, it's a sort of female detective um, novels, but she's just a really cool character. And uh, they only sadly made the first two into um, uh, films with uh, Billy Piper playing the part. And then oh, they stopped. Nice. Well, they got to book three, which was my favourite. So that was really, yeah, that is always the case. Um, the other ones I've been reading, not entirely London centric, but they are set in London is uh, uh, Mark Latham's Lazarus Gate series, which has got a sort of weird alternate realms and it's got some really nasty and cool vampire things in it. And, uh, and that's great to sort of secret. All. It's, that, it's coming back to that thing we often have with um, things like Sherlock Holmes, of the idea of the, the group of adventurers doing a thing, which makes it so good for role-playing things because the setup, Sherlock Holmes, for instance, is such a player character. 
you know, it, it's right, you know, I've just decided I do adventures and there I go and it's done for you. So the setting itself just always lends itself to these sort of things. And that's another one that does it so well. It's sadly very tough to find Victorian corners in London nowadays. No, and then you're blessed around the corner. Suddenly you end up in a street. There's one in at the north, just close to Shoreditch. There's one street I know they often use to film Victorian Christmas stories. And it's just that one single street which is preserved where sometime in the middle of the summer you go there and they will have white foam everywhere because they, they, they're shooting a Christmas yeah. scene. At, at least they did before CGI yeah. became uh, more affordable. Sean, uh, Victorian London and Sherlock Holmes, uh, are these featured in the London Master Guide? Um, there's a little bit of Victoriana in there because um, as, um, as everyone said, like, you know, it's quite a big thing when people think of London, specifically people that maybe don't live here, that it's, you know, this place with fog and things in the shadows, like gas lamps and stuff. I think um, there is bits of, of that in the London Master's Guide. You know, there's bits about Jack the Ripper, um, of course, because, you know, that that is a figure a little bit like Sherlock Holmes in that, you know, Arguably, was he was he real? Was he not? Uh, obviously, the deaths were, were real, but I think it's one of those characters that just spawns stories. You know, like um, I, th- I think when I was putting together lists of uh, London as a setting, you know, you get works like From Hell by Alan Moore, which is an amazing graphic novel about Jack the Ripper. It's you know super good. But then I was thinking about it, and I actually read like a, a Batman uh, graphic novel, which is Gotham by Gaslight, which isn't in London. It's Gotham City, but Jack the Ripper. And it's weird because that smoke and fog and stuff just migrates over there. And it's that's almost, you know, it's weird because it's like, no, no, we're not going to sell it in London, but we want everything that people think about, you know, the, this, um, you know, that kind of atmosphere. But I think um, for me, in terms of stories and stuff, uh, a really um, big one for me is Neverwhere uh, by Neil Gaiman. I remember reading that, I think, like the first year that I moved here and it's you know <laughs> the main character is just someone from the north that moves to the city and it's like this place is weird and then it just gets weirder and you know I, and I, as I was getting to know the city I kind of like you know that there's characters like the old Bailey the Earl's Court and I think part of what is quite endearing about that book is you go Earl's Court I know what that is and then you know, it's a, uh, in the book, it's a tube carriage full of, you know, it's like a Baron's Earl's Court type thing. And it shouldn't work, but it just does. It's just really good. You know, like Blackfriars and things like that. So I'd say that's one of my um, favourite, like, London-based stories. I think one story, like you mentioned Blackfriar, one, one story I, I thought was fascinating when I first heard of it, because it, it was not such an old story, was when one morning the commuters are crossing the Thames on Blackfriar Bridge in the mid-90s, I believe, uh, they, it's grim, I'm sorry, uh, 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 apparently. I think I know what you're about to say. Yeah, because, yeah the, one morning the commuters, they were crossing the bridge and they found a man hanged. So again, mid-90s, it's quite unbelievable to think that uh, they found a man hanging from uh, Blackfriar Bridge, and uh, uh, apparently it was a hit job from uh, organized crime, uh, probably Italian organized crime, because this individual 
was a banker for the Vatican, and it was a, a punishment for for being engaged in a number of shady, uh, yeah, uh, white. Um, how do you call that? Uh, been doing a, a panel in French. No, I lost all my my words. Uh, yeah, he's been dealing with a lot of corruption stuff allegedly, and uh, they found him dead this morning, and they wanted to make a send out a message. And yeah, mid nineties. You know, that's a bridge I take very often. When you hear stories of the Victorian ages and so on, you can imagine very grim things. But grim, that something that grim that recently. I always thought it was quite fascinating. And people also, uh, their stories, because of course it's Black Friars, which means the, the black monk, the dark monk. So people go on with conspiracy theories um, about that. So yeah, uh, quite a, a fascinating uh, thing I find. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, London, it's got a long history. I mean, it's, uh, I mentioned Boudicca. It, it's not as often mentioned, but the, the Roman and Saxon times are also uh, uh, moments which are, are quite special in the history of London. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting with London because, you know, it's such a multi-layered city that's just built up and it's like ghost stories built on top of legends because, you know, it's. I think the original like foundation of London's like 15 feet below what it is now because it's just been built up over time. But um, I, I think it's interesting because like even the founder of London, no one really knows how it got founded. And there's like a legend that it was like uh, a Roman called Brutus of Troy who defeated a giant to create the city. And even that's in its founding. So it's, you know, it's almost, it started off with legends and myths and strange things that happen. And yeah, it's, it's a very interesting place. Yeah, the Trojans got around a bit in terms of starting yeah. cities because, of course, Rome is allegedly founded by Trojans and, and all that sort of like all the descendants mm. of Trojans. So it's yeah, yeah, they got about, didn't they? Get a move on. <laughs> yes. I think as well, it's there's an element with the city that it's grown in a way different to I think arguably any other city in the world in that as it's got bigger, it's consumed the little villages that used mm. to be around it. So I live in Finchley in North London. Um, in the Victorian era, that was a village. 10, 20 miles outside London. Now the city's grown out to that. And all these little districts and places used to be villages, and they still kept some of their old character and some of their old feeling of, we are this district. So it's all these, I usually describe the city as a as a collection of villages linked by a common pollution. So it's <laughs> it's that sort of, but it, it's because it was never built out as, right, this is the zone for this, this is the area for this, this is how this all it's never planned and it's just consumed as it's spread out that uh, when thinking back to mortal engines um that idea of london going around consuming other cities it's it's just a very literal interpretation of what kind of the city does do and i think why that those books made so much sense at the time as well. and, and i think the you know the no planning is why it's an absolute nightmare to drive through because yeah, uh, some of those roads don't make thing. sense. <laughs> yeah, but the hilarious yeah. thing was that they actually had the chance to turn it into a, a modern at the time city with, you know, beautiful street plans mm. and everything. Christopher Wren after the Great Fire of London, they had this amazing plan to actually go back and, and sort of like start again from scratch and make it nice and sensible and pretty. And the locals were having absolutely none of it, which is why it's still got all those little weird yes. crazy roads. That but, but I think that's why people like it. it. 
you know, you know, because you, you go down a weird alleyway or a street and all the pubs. I think, you know, I think if it eventually, if, if it did become gridded, it, it'd lose so much yeah. of its character, I think. And I know it's annoying to drive through or get on a bus and it takes so long just to travel like two miles uh, into the city. But, you know, Londoners are quite stubborn, aren't they? <laughs> it's, funny because, the it's funny because at the same time, it's not as granular as... Um, more continental cities where it's organic, but of a very small scale. Uh, you know, the streets and so on are very small. In London, the streets are, it's not great to drive around, but it's not either, you know, the little town, town center in most places, which is very pedestrian that you can find it, let's say in Italy. It's very funny how the power structure is reflected in London because You've got cities which were planned, let's say Barcelona, or had big extensions at some point which were planned. You have cities uh, which were like Paris. They say that at some point, okay, we're going to destroy all of that and all of that because we got the central power and we decide that and we're going to make those big boulevards and change the elevation of the buildings. You even have the big Italian cities where they say, okay, we're not going to change the fabric of the city really, but we're going to dig a trench through it. And we're going to make those big uh, boulevards again, but which are very different than the one in Paris, for instance. And then you got London. And uh, one of my favorite stories as a professional of the built environment is how Regent Street is an expression of the power structure of London because you got the prince. He's got a big plot of land. He wants to make a park there, a Regent's Park. He's got another property somewhere. I'm not sure which one it was, but yeah, it was his home. He wants a boulevard connecting the two, but because of the Magna Carta and the way things are done in the UK, it's still a monarchy, but still private ownership is very, very important. And But that is private ownership of big landlords. It's not small owners. And he needs to bend Regent Street to go around the property of one of the private owners who is very wealthy and says to the prince, I don't care. I'm not selling to you. And like Napoleon who said, what you, you're not selling to me. Well, that's very interesting as an idea. You know what? I'm going to go straight to you. <laughs> yeah. Here in London, you've got this organic thing. It's, it's large chunks of things because it's big landlord, big powers competing with one another, big organizations. Mm. So, and it's, it's quite good for role playing game, I think, because then you, you've got all the conspiracies. You, you can go with. Uh, a number of different organizations going uh, after one another. Uh, speaking of, uh, you know, my favorite, I'm cheating a bit. My favorite London-based story is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is a good one to pick because it picks everything. If you go beyond the infamous movie and you go see the graphic novels, uh, you even have Harry Potter in there. You're there in the 60s, in the 90s. You're there from the, the 19th century to today. And you got everything. You even have Big Brother and, uh, yeah, a, a number of, of different things. So if you were role-playing in that, you would have this crazy multi-layered story, which is pretty much impossible to manage, to be honest. And, of course, that's where From Hell came from that Sean mentioned earlier. It's It's Alan Moore's unused research notes for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He'd mm. done so much work on it, he decided he was going to do something with it and that's where that, that particular graphic novel came from. I, I think um, what you're saying um, 
you know, obviously uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, it's like your adventuring party, isn't it, almost? Um, but I think what was quite cool about London as like a, a setting for uh, role-playing games is that there's just like plot hooks everywhere, uh, you know, like legends that are things that you can just go, that's something I'm going to make you do. I mean, one of, one of my favourites is that um, there's a legend that if, Big Ben told 13 times uh, um, that, you know, the four lines in Trafalgar Square will wake up and either destroy the city or save it. And you're like, cool, you could do a campaign around that. Or, you Easy. know, could, yeah, <laughs> it could be the end, you know, an end boss or whatever. And I think, you know, things like the ravens in the Tower of London, the legend is if they died and the monarchy will fall, you know, you could even make a game about saving the ravens, you know, there's plenty of plots in London. Almost so, fascinating is the fact that London wasn't always as important as it is now. I mean, for a very, very long time, it was very much a minor city when we had sort of like some of the Saxon kingdoms and the Vikings and everything. And it's it's sort of like, although it's been con- pretty much continuously inhabited for, for well, thousands of years now, mm. it's really only kind of come to prominence sort of like in maybe the last 500 or so. So it's it's sort of like dominance of of Britain is pretty recent in its history to a very large extent. It's sometimes difficult to fathom London at different times, even just this one thing, the demographics of London. I mean, it's so populated today, people cannot imagine that after World War II, I think it's up to, I think we reached the lowest number of residents in London somewhere in the 60s or something like, like that. And we reach the, we only passed the number of residents in London. I think it was in 2013 or maybe 12 that London managed to catch up to the number of habitants it had back in the 19th century because it went through a big dip right after World War II for, for different reasons because it was a swinging city and so on, but it was not a, a center of power as it used to be or as it is now again today to, to some extent at least. Yeah, so I think some of that was also to do with the, I think there was a, a general drain on the countryside in around the early Victorian era when they, the factories started coming in and people left the country to go and work in the factories because uh, it was surprisingly slightly better and the work wasn't seasonal. Um, and they actually had quite a lot of trouble trying to keep the countryside working in the Victorian era because there was so much people. So these massive influxes, and then this created these rookeries and these massively high population centres that were uh, with people who had nowhere to go because they couldn't afford to go back to anything else as well. So, so and there's a lot of social factors that brought people into cities as well at that time. We already sort of discussed that, but uh, what's your favourite era specifically? I mean, we got the Blitz, Swinging 60s, the reigns of Elizabeth, of Victoria, the Roman, the Saxons, and King Arthur, 1984, and the future with mortal engines. Uh, Lynn, uh, what is it for you? Is it Victorian, Victorian, Victorian all the time? Not just Victorian, Victorian, Victorian. It's largely Victorian, it has to be said, um, for various reasons. Um, obviously, World War Two as well, for various reasons. Um Acton Cthulhu was obviously largely British based and we did um, source books from there. Um, so I'd say those two historical periods in particular for, for my personal 
ones, but also 1920s and 30s as well. There are a few independent games, but it's, I always find it interesting how in tabletop role-playing, with, with a few exceptions like Arctung Tulu, uh, World War II and the Blitz are largely unexplored by most tabletop role-playing games. And even, not just in... It's only starting now that having this conversation behind the myth of the Blitz. I've seen some recent articles in parallel with the, the current situation, which were going through saying, well, you know, this the Blitz was this moment where everybody was heroic and enduring. It, it wasn't entirely true. There were a lot of crime during that time and, and so on. Yeah, an awful lot of crime. Um, obviously, you turn all the lights off and, and people who uh, don't like behaving in a social manner will take advantage of it. And there was a lot of crime. There's some very good, actually, murder mystery stories set around those particular um, stories um, by um, some women authors whose names are completely escaping me at the moment. Um, but, yeah, you know, people like to write mythologies where their nations look good. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's... and. Obviously, propaganda at the time was there to help make sure that the morale was kept up and the country did keep going. Because um, it would have been very easy for everybody to just go, no, right, that's it. We haven't got a hope. Let's just yeah. give in kind of thing. Um, so, yes, propaganda, um, spin, it's all very important um, in London's history and the way that London has been presented to the world and the way London is still presented to the world. Yes. I think you do hear stories of Americans usually as they, that uh, have come as tourists and gone to some really nasty areas and been surprised that it's not all Cockneys pulling their forelock and, and helpful bobbies to say, hello, how are you? And we'll give you a cup of tea. And they go, well, you're in a massive city that's got to have some nasty areas and you don't want to go. So, you know. And then you see some of the other things that people say about London. But this whole image of it being still this lovely gaslight quaint place where you go and shake hands with the queen i think some people actually still think that's how it works the whole thing as well though is that it never really was but it's it's interesting uh, that that's how it gets portrayed I and mean, it's always hilarious when you watch um american television shows that set episodes in london and the way that it is it's just like your quaint doilied t-shop uh, with your your bobby and the changing of the garden and, and your cheeky taxi drivers and goodness knows what you know and they're yeah. they're hysterical comedy they really are oh god yes i mean i still i mean in real world terms i still get a bit of a weird feeling if i walk through seven dials which today is now a lovely bit of coffee shops and uh, and some some you know cake shops and and yeah, i think it's on the way to the bin planet where the where obviously the comics are and things. Um, and you think, at the Victorian time, that was one of the most deadly rookeries in the place. It was it was horrific. There were, you know, I would have, someone of, like me would have been murdered for going through it. Um, and just outside, uh, and I think um, I do love telling people, visitors to my theatre, that apparently the Haymarket was the biggest place for prostitutes in the whole of the city. It was, it was apparently extremely blatant when they were selling their wares out there. Um, and that's outside this nice London West End theatre. And, and you think, that's, you know, in the Victorian time, that's what the city was like for a lot of people. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't equate to the amount of the rows of Starbucks that you see nowadays sometimes. Sean, you wanted to add something? Oh, no, it's all right. It's all good. I was, I was just going to make a point about when people uh, come to London, uh, you know, and I think we've talked about this before, that it is like all these villages... Uh, people who aren't from the city are like, oh, cool, like, I'm, I'm in London, 
can you like meet me in 20 minutes? And you're like, it's not how it works. It's <laughs> 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 not how it works. And even like my mum's like that. Like, oh, like, oh, I didn't think that was, you know, like that. Because even people that live who don't live in London just assume that it's all, you know, like, super trendy it's cool like but you know it's just a normal city like anywhere else right there's good bits bad bits yeah when you got boring bits <laughs> when you got friends and family who visit and you do a piccadilly circus and Paul's millennium bridge soft bank and then god knows what and uh, when they leave they're like wow it's very tiring to live here i don't know how you do it and you're like it's much less tiring when you're not there yeah. I think it's because they assume that's what you do every day. Like go go to, and it's always it's always Camden Market on a Saturday. You're like, please, please, I don't want to go there on a Saturday. Or meet me yeah. on Oxford Street, and you're like, can you just please go somewhere else? Just ask me where to go, and it won't be stressful. If only there was a guide for them, a travel guide of some kind. Yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. Someone, London, someone should do that, right? <laughs> I mean, London exists geographically in several different formats. I mean, there's the um, there's the people who get to London and literally navigate London by the underground map. And they don't go above and realise that in some cases, it's actually quicker to go topside and walk than it is to cross along under the streets to a different line to get to another station. And yeah. you do it and it's... It's really interesting how people's sense of geography in London is is very very warped by the London Underground map. There was and someone how who relate to each other. Th there was someone on the internet who did a sketch. She dressed up. She tried. The, the idea was, what if each London Underground line were an actual person? And yes. she, when, when she dressed up as the Piccadilly line, she was like a a, a complete tourist with the "I Love London" T-shirt. And she, one of the things she said was, wow, I love the London Underground. It's so cheap. I went from Covent Garden to Leicester Square and it was only two pounds and a half. But it's yeah. only like a three minute walk. Yes. You know, you've got to go down the 200 odd steps and things like it's that. The most, it's life. the most expensive uh, ride in London. Yeah, this is what I always think with, as if you ask me what a badge to become a Londoner when you get your membership card of being in London, That to me is when you know how to get from Leicester Square to Covent Garden by by foot. When you can do that, that's the one that everyone comes and they get confused in the streets and then they end up taking the tube. But when you know that journey, and I think there is a statistic that says that section of the tube line is, as as you said, not only one that is actually quicker to walk to than it is to go down, get the tube and come across, but it is also the most busy part of the entire network mm. because all the, that's all the, all the tourists do. Yeah, that's where all the... I mean, there's the yeah. signs on the yeah. carriages going, if you want to go to Covent Garden, please get off at the get next away. station. <laughs> <laughs> Jog on. I think it's the, it's the bit when you realise, isn't it? And you go, oh, I've been stupid there. I could have walked the whole time I've ever done this. Uh, <laughs> But that's how you become a Londoner, things like that. You figure that out. I, th I think this is how, and I still do it today. I've lived it for like 20 years. I still do it where you will go somewhere and you'll go, hang on, I'm here. Oh, I can get from here to here just by going there. Oh, wow, I've never known that. And, and yeah. you, you still do it, doesn't matter how long you've lived it. Yeah, I think I think that's like, I think it's a really nice thing, like like in any city when you live there. But I think there's a particular like pride in London when you like figure it out because you know if you can go, no, let's go this way. It's a bit quicker. Like people that aren't from the city, are like, oh my god, how did you, you know? Around and, the British Museum and King's Cross now, but it's taken a while to learn that. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, useless yeah. fact from my textile training: um, 
Did you know that every London Underground line has its own specific fabric that they use to decorate the seats? And you can work out which lines you're on by the fabric on the seats. And I know some antique shop where you can buy rolls of that fabric if you want really? to. Yeah, yeah, uh, you can find. I think they move now. No, they're still there. Uh, uh, where they hold uh, Maltby Street Market, which is not in Maltby Street, uh, here in uh, Bermondsey, you can, you can buy full rolls of the, uh, what's it called? I don't remember. It's got a French name, actually, the, this this fabric. Yeah, it, it, those little things are the Oyster card. I think it's something which you're, you're proud of as a Londoner. I technically don't use one anymore. I'm using uh, my phone. But I, I remember a colleague of my wife, she lost her Oyster card so many times and asked her replacement so many times that Transport for London replied to her, actually, we cannot give you an Oyster card anymore. And <laughs> allegedly she turned to her colleagues asking, what am I going to do now? And one of her colleagues answered to her, you need to leave London now. Yes. <laughs> I think um, with Oyster cards, like losing them, I think I read some, it was a couple of years ago, but it was like, the amount of money on lost Oyster cards was something ridiculous, you know, like millions and millions oh, of pounds. Yeah. Because, you know, and I think, as you say, like people you, you use them, uh, you know, maybe a little bit less now because you can use your, your, you know, your bank card or your phone. But um, yeah, yeah, when I saw that fact, it's like, that's insane. <laughs> I could go on and on on, on Oyster card and just transport in London. One day I have an episode just about transport in London because it's, it's my little uh, hobby. Uh, but uh, yeah, before we leave um, the errors, and we we go in, into one or two of the questions from the chat room. Uh, Sean, uh, when I asked you this question beforehand, you mentioned um, King Arthur and Elizabethan times. Uh, that's something we did not really discuss yet. Yeah, I think you know, I was going to say Victorian uh, at some yeah. point, but then I was like, no, that's the easy answer. Like, have, I mean, have another thing. Shakespeare is there in the corner in the shadow waiting I'm, to be mentioned. I'm, I'm, I'm about to. Um, but basically, yeah, I really like the Elizabethan like part and partly because of Shakespeare stuff. But I think it was like a really interesting time of the city because it was, you know, like Francis Drake going out on ships, bringing back new foods, new things. And, um, you know, the, the culture at the time is very like arts based and, you know, obviously Shakespeare, but, you know, it's, the city at that point um, had started to get quite big. Uh, there's like 200,000 people, which doesn't seem, um, you know, like a lot now. But in comparison, I think the second biggest city was Norwich, which had like 15,000, which, you know, back in that time must have been pretty insane. But I think, um, yeah, I do like the Elizabethan point because I think it was like superstition, and like court intrigue and you know like power of monarchs and stuff and i think you know as a as a fantasy nerd kind of kind of my leaning um but i think i'd say i'd say it's an untapped gold mine for role playing because we haven't seen much role yeah. elizabeth betting generally and got, say, there we go day. you two there's a task <laughs> but look, my favorite bit because i was you know this, and this is a little bit about this in my book but and, you know, I mentioned, like, plot hooks or characters or whatever. The city's, like, full of them that you can use in, in games. But uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth had a advisor, and I'm just going to look at my notes to make sure I get this right, but had an advisor called uh, Dr. John Dee, who was basically her astrologer. Um, and But he was also, like, her master of occult and 
claim to use like black stone to speak to like angels and things like that. And you know, there's so many rumors about him. You know that he uh, was like he he started like the secret intelligence, and it was like two zeros, which were meant to be eyes, and then seven, which was the alchemy number, which then Ian Fleming used as James Bond's call sign. And like, it's just really interesting. Um, and I was like, yeah, he, he sounds like he needs to be an end boss, or you know. He can oh, give you a quest. He a lot in Call of Cthulhu. Usually yeah. isn't, isn't oh, behind the various I... plots and things. <laughs> my ignorance. You're, when I said that, you all looked at me and went... <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he's the premiere in, in the, the old um, classic work mas- vampire masquerade as well in London. So. Well, I guess I mean, often in Call of Cthulhu you find a book by... Uh, oh, jeez. Uh, what's his name? The Wickedest. Uh, oh, Crowley. No, the old yeah, you, 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 yeah. you, you would find a book uh, from John D. with a preface by uh, Alistair Crowley. That's yeah. usually what you find. Yeah. One day, for my... when we've done all the other books, I will get my Elizabethan setting for Call of Cthulhu done. One oh, day. <laughs> so it's, it's not a scoop yet. It's, it's not just... a scoop yet, no. I've been threatening it for at least three years now. Um, mm. And one day I will get through enough of the stuff we've already got on to actually get it started. Yeah, it's a it's an era of incarnation in Nephilim, uh, which is uh, the second edition was basic role playing, and I, I, I believe Mike once mentioned to me that Nephilim might come back to Chaosium one day. That would be that would be interesting. But uh, I remember specifically the era of incarnation for Elizabeth time was uh, the London of John Dee. So you would pick that, and uh, that was. Uh, what was going on. I think they even had bear pit at the time. You know, you had those theatres, the yeah, world yeah. theatres, yeah. where they would have Shakespeare, and you had another one. <laughs> it was not, you, you would go to the wrong one. Oh, I'm about to see uh, the first time uh, Romeo and Juliet here. Actually, you pick the wrong one, uh, you're going to find a bear fighting. Uh, yes. I think this is the sad thing of, of history, that when things go back so far, we often talk about London's Victorian city because it built those stone buildings. Whereas all those um, Tudor and Elizabethan and even earlier, those wooden buildings have just gone now. They've, mm. they've fallen apart. They've been lost. And it's such a shame. Or, or people not realising that they would be historical in 400 years' time, knocked them down or rebuilt them or redid things to them. So I think that's society become, it's almost like we start London's history with Victorians so much because that's all that's left. But it's, that's one of the things that makes it so easy to forget. There's these amazing time periods but we haven't got such an obvious link to them anymore, which is such a shame. We sometimes don't realise, I would like to have just the power of seeing in the past, you know, not even travelling, but just seeing. Yeah. Because seeing a place like London through the ages, it would be just so alien to us, the, the way it functions. Uh, you know, in Victorian time, just, oh, hey, how do you get a piece of meat to the centre of London? You, you need to to bring the animals quite close to where you're going to consume them. You need to have them oh, slaughter yeah. them. It, it's, it's all endeavor. The, or the, the city smells or the cities are clean. What, what are your standards? Uh, the way people occupy the space together, there are maps showing how in the past you wouldn't have, you would not have a fancy neighborhood. You, you would have fancier neighborhood, but the fancy neighborhood would still have a back alley with much less wealthy people well, living there. This was, if, if you've seen any of, because uh, we used these because they were very cheap and they were amazing, um, Gustave Doré's uh, Illustrations of London, the Victorian one again, uh, he went through all of London and drew uh, some really dangerous streets. You're thinking as a guy doing his notes with pen and with his, 
pencils and paper in some really dodgy areas and think <laughs> they must have uh, it took him took his life into his hands, I think, in some places. But he drew all layers of society in London. His, his images are incredible. It's like he's taken a camera, basically. And what I find interesting is one of Hampstead Heath, there are these um, ladies and gentlemen in these amazing costumes, and they're sitting under trees next to sheep and the sheep farmers who have brought their sheep to graze up on um, the common. And you see an awful lot more of what you don't expect in the city of the very rich people and the very poor, poor people actually sitting not too far apart from each other on benches. I mean, yes, obviously the rich people aren't going into the horrible um, rookeries and dives that the poor people are having to, to live in, but there is a lot of that mixture is still there and that visceral thing of people living next to sheep and, and uh, when you get onto death in London at the time in the Victorian era and the overflowing graveyards, there's so much other things. You think, gee, I'd love to see it, but I would not like to smell it. Um, yeah, I don't think you'd I want to smell was, smell Elizabethan no. time either. Uh, there was a, there was a story I think of one of the reasons we have the sewer system is because the Houses of Parliament when they were built the um, and they were all the new MPs went this is lovely but we can't open any of the windows because the Thames smells so bad um, and in summer it's just doubly awful and that provoked them to build a, a proper sewage system. Because so much so it's even known as the Great Stink, isn't it? That's yeah. the thing that really prompted them to get Basil Jet in. It was, yeah. It's a lot better now. But, uh, well, but it's, it was awful. Funny detail, uh, Big Ben, or I believe it's the Elizabeth Tower, the actual name of it. Uh, the whole reason this tower is there, it's actually a ventilation shaft. So it's a chimney for to pull the air from under the the parliament and if you are in the neighborhood you will see a lot of more obvious chimneys like that but they needed such a big one for the parliament that at some point they said well we need to make it a feature somehow so what are we going to do with it oh, big, well, clock. big clock big clock 19th <laughs> century big clock we control the time in my my theater obviously my theater was built in about 1813 i think 1820 and um what was quite interesting when we put in central heating, some air conditioning systems, we actually use all the old chimney rest uh, tunnels to funnel the air around. So we basically put fan systems at the end of all these tunnels. And uh, my boss describes trying to run in cables down them and crawling through all of them like an old chimney sweep. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's some of the ways we've had to repurpose some of these buildings when they work that way. Uh, it's we need to move on from historic London, but uh, it, it reminds yeah. me, you know, the, the the little job you talk about chimneys. So I'm thinking about Mary Poppins and the, the chimney sweepers, and one thing leading in another in my crazy mind. I remembered something, the crazy jobs you would have in London because there were so many people, and and there was the useful crazy jobs like that. One of the jobs you could have in London was in the morning you would go around streets, you would have a list, or you would remember that this or that person needs to wake up at a certain time, and your job was to throw a small stone on their window. <laughs> I think some of them actually had long sticks as well, so they could tap on particular windows. As well. That might that might be yeah. less dangerous. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, you paid them one more. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, if you, for for people visiting London, I really recommend having a walking tour with a guide. Uh, there's some very cool ones, and and there there are stuff which were explained for to me which I've never seen in any movie. 
I think people would be like, that's complete nonsense. Like how in the, the East end people would sleep on a rope. So like in the East end back in the days, if you were having a good night as a prostitute, you were not wealthy enough to be able to rent, a, could find a place to sleep for the night rather than rough sleeping would be to rent a room. Under that would be to rent a casket. So you'd have kind of a warehouse with side by the complete floor of that big room would be like those mortuary casket, but within which people would live and people were working on the edges of the caskets. And then the cheapest that, but still you had some protection for the night was those rooms where you had a rope tied from one side of the room to another tightly and people would sleep side by side with the rope under their armpits and they would sleep like that. And in the morning they would untie the rope and people would just fall from it. But it was still something considered that, well, it's still, I can afford that. So I'm still lucky to, to be able to sleep uh, this way. Something to do with it being, I think it was mostly churches that did that. And I think it was also might have been something to do with, you weren't allowed to lie down and sleep in the church, but sitting on the pews was appropriate because that was, you were worshipping. So then wow. they're just along that. I think it was one of those things. And if you look, coming back to From Hell, although it's not necessarily a really good movie of it, um, in the, I think Johnny Depp and, oh, what's the, Heather something, I think. It's Heather Graham. Graham. Heather Graham, that's one. Um, playing that one. There is a scene where she, as one of the, the prostitutes that's being um, hunted by the Ripper, there's a scene where they do that exact thing, I think, and you see them all sleeping in the church and getting the rope untied and all falling down on them. Oh, I didn't remember that. Yeah. We, we got someone in the chat room mentioning um, someone very active. I, I don't know how to pronounce your name. It's Ichifi. I'm not sure if it's an acronym or, or something. Ichifi. Uh, that person mentions that Quatermass makes a use of Wembley Stadium, which is very creepy as a London landmark. I, I'm not, I don't know Quatermass. What's what oh. it? Um, Quatermass was um, Nigel Neal, uh, who wrote an awful lot of very good horror stuff. I've not actually seen any of the Quatermass stuff. I know my mum was absolutely terrified by it as a child. Um, so, yeah, it's it's all to do with alien invasion and people not being quite who they think you think they are. And it's very, very creepy. Um, and a lot of old TV series made very good use of London locations to sort of build that that sense of horror and alienation, um, particularly when they're filming around some of the newer builds that, that were put up after the World War Two. So you've got these stark concrete blocks and these wastelands and bomb sites that you can use to very good effect for creating that, that horrific atmosphere. Yes. Well, there's particularly, I think Quatermass and the Pit was one that particularly got remade a couple of times. Because so I think the one you're um, in the chat room is talk, might be talking about is, I think, a 1980s version um, where people, I think, were being stolen by a sort of planet thing. Um, 19, 1978 series uh, with John Mills as the star. Yes, John Mills, okay. yes. Um, but they had, there's an earlier 60s one. I think it's been the same with, with the, um, with having so much bombed out that there were people were find people were used to finding unexploded bombs. But there was this sense a lot of these stories where you, what else might you uncover under there? And of course in Quest Mass and the Pit they discover an alien spacecraft basically in it. And what is interesting is it's not 
here's the aliens, they wake up and they're like, they're all long dead, but they have a legacy. And this is what was made it so interesting that then affects what, how people are today. And it starts, uh, you know, creating all kinds of other problems outside it. But it's, they, there were some really great, really spooky ones. And, and it comes back to this thing of, because I think it's like a Hobbs Lane station or something. And when Quatermass looks into the history, he discovers this is where the mystery has come from or where the name of the streets come from. It's because people knew way back before the city was founded that there was something bad here, something was buried here. Uh, and it's got guilt as mythology. So that they are absolutely great London stories. It's some, it's amazing sometimes what you, I know one of the remains of one of Shakespeare's real theater, not the, the one they rebuilt, uh, but another one, oh, you will find, you, you will find it in the basement on a, of a very modern slash contemporary building and you need a, a special authorization to go there. It's only planks remaining, uh, we are, which are, somewhat submerged in water but somehow this very dreary i mean it's very wet and liquid liquid and dark place is there in the basement of that modern building because they had to for heritage and archaeological reason but yeah that's that's a very crazy thing to see uh if you google it you probably can find videos of it it's a really weird place uh we we way past time to go uh discuss finally Uh, London and Tabletop are opening it. Again, the chat room, if you have questions specific to that, please throw them away. But which London-centric Tabletop RPG setting or supplement did you find the most interesting in your readings? Lynn, I believe you've worked on plenty of them or you you corrected the grammar or or maybe you just <laughs> they were written in hieroglyphs so you translated them. Well, I haven't done one in hieroglyphs yet. That would be a bit of a nightmare. Um, although um, Peter Rabbit in hieroglyphs is absolutely hilarious. Um, oh, gosh. it's um, There's been quite a few, like I said, Victoriana. Um, that was that was an entertaining read and inter interesting to work on because obviously I got to work with Walt uh, Chichinowski on that. He's going to kill me for mispronouncing his name again. Um, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> My notes say Cthulhu by Gaslight. Cthulhu by Gaslight, yeah. Um, that was a book I got many, many moons ago, long before I was actually working for Chaosium, that I enjoyed reading because it was getting it. Because you've got the fog, because you've got that sort of like historical setting, it's, it's good for setting horror stories in. Um, we were going to be doing a new version of that, which is, is mine to play with um, later this year. Uh, oh, already later this year. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. It's the it's the next big thing. I've got a few more books I need to get sorted out and and sort of like in in further down the production line. And then yes, the the big push for me this year is is getting Gaslight sorted um, because we have that and we have a big campaign that's in final stages of of second playtest, um, which will follow up on it, which has been set in London actually, which were really good fun when we playtested the original version a few years ago. Um, So, yeah, you know, um, I am looking forward to, to getting into Gaslight and being able to go and do Ooh. some, like, a really London-centric book. Sean, have you ever played anything London-centric, which was interesting? I, I feel that, like, that's a little bit of a leading question there, Callum. Uh, as evidenced by All my... All my uh, questions are leading. <laughs> of course, that's your job, right? Um, yeah. 
as evidenced by my lack of Cthulhu knowledge there, um, I've not played too many uh, London-centric uh, role-playing games, but one that I did wasn't... didn't think it'd be about London, but um, I played a game with Callum, uh, which was Jason Statham's Big Vacation by uh, Grant Howitt. Uh, and Jason was on holiday in London, uh, and Callum did a marvellous job of being Jason Statham. But what's quite funny about it is that uh, games usually set, you know, like on holiday. But, you know, I think, didn't we go to like the Hackney, you took us to the Hackney dog tracks and we were in the Shard and skydiving off that. And yeah, I reused material so from uh, from some episodes of MasterChef UK. So we ended up in the Fishmonger Hall with some food critics there and Jason and being the, the main guest. there's a with a duck boat down the Thames, you know, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Wow. But it's great because, you know, as, as a Londoner, I think, you know, no, no matter if it's in a game like that or something that's, you know, a little bit more defined, um, it's always just nice when you're like, I know what that is. Like, I think yeah. when you did the duck boat, we were all like, yeah, you know, it's, it's just ridiculous. This is the other thing that's always annoying when you see London on television that people run usually from iconic areas to other iconic areas. It was like the, the Robert Downey um, Jr. Sherlock Holmes recently. You thought, Hang on, how have you got from the Houses of Parliament to, to t- Tower Bridge with that in like 10 minutes? Just by like turning just, a corner. No, that's, that's a good hour or two's walk, you know. The, the worst <laughs> for me is not even action sequence, but it's when people get out of the British Museum and say, hang on, I need to tell you about something. Cut, and they are in simple. And they're still doing the same, <laughs> the same conversation, but they're two miles away. And you're what like, did they do between? What, did you just pause? <laughs> so Andrew, we, we did not even mention vampires. Uh is it is Fall of London half decent, you know, for to play in London? Is it okay? Or is it kind of Amazing. so so you would rather play in Chicago by night or if you're French Paris by night? Well, this is the thing I love about Vampire and, and Vampire Five as, as well does this well, is that it always really uses the setting. You know, you can't play the same game in Chicago by night that you can in London by night because those cities are different, have a different style, have a different type of character who's going to be there. Uh, I think that was one of the jobs we did uh, very well with London, Fall of London was was to try and bring out the city without... I mean, it's, it's mainly adventure, but we've got enough source material in there to, use, to work through it. Um, I was just over the moon because they gave me my chapter and said um, social decadence and... Uh, um, despair like oh right i can deal with that that's great that's all my favorite stuff in one place so uh it's great and it was great to work with you know Dirt and all the other writers you know fitted together really nicely because they were a very there were a lot of them were londoners themselves as well so all so, is london by night different uh, or full of london well first of all why is it not london by night why is it full of london what what is falling in london i know I know uh, Olympus was falling and then London was falling. Wow. So is it an influence of a recent movie of uh, Vampire the Massacre? To catch up with vampire background, we have the Second Inquisition is a big part of the new fifth edition vampire. And in Fall of London, they essentially make an assault on London to take down all of the vampire society in it. It's the entirety. Of, it's a huge campaign um, that's going to topple some of the most powerful iconic characters in the setting um, are really on the back foot as they cut completely underestimated this and it's a wonderful way to um, to use a setting where you have these ancient arrogant creatures very quickly learning that it is not just something they can brush off and uh, and of course your players are in the middle of this are they going to help them are they going to 
hinder them? Are they going to try and make a profit from what's going on? Uh, and at the same time, it was designed as well as an adventure that people can start vampire with. So your characters wake up with no memory, you come back from a ritual that you've been put sort of on ice in for quite some time, and you're trying to figure out things as you come into the city. So it's designed to be able to pick up, start playing the game, and be, people knew to the, so that, yeah, so the new people could experience Vampire and London uh, without having to know where they're in before they start, but also so experienced players could enjoy coming into this city and playing through an iconic moment in the recent history of the new background setting for it. So it was a lot of fun. There's a lot of variety. They, it was staged with, you know, we've got social events. There are combat events. There are intrigue events. Uh, it's very nicely laid and put together. So, uh, um, the team did a really good job on it. I was very proud to be part of it. I don't want to spoil things too much. And but at the same time, I might be confusing two different entire, two things which are entirely different. But does that revolve around the cult of Mithras somehow? Yeah, your, your play, it's not giving away too much to say you've been involved in that in the start. That's why you're on ice. And one of the places you start is coming back to the side of places buried under the city. There is the Mithranium, the, the old original temple. Is still the remains of it still exist and in the same way as that theatre, you know, stuck in the bottom of a building somewhere and you can go and visit it. And of course, the, you know, in, in our Fall of London adventure, there's another couple of layers underneath there where you've been resting and sleeping and soon to wake up very hungry. And uh, Ed's got some really nice things. It really uses the setting. And so we've taken some iconic places. I've got, you know, in my, my section, you know, you go and visit the Shard because there are, I noticed on the plans for the Shard, there's a two floors that are just non-existent. They're just, now, you know that they're the business offices of the people who own the building or just a, a maintenance bay, but it's so easy to go, that's where the vampires are. They've saved those two floors for themselves, um, so they can look out over the city they own. Um, so there's all manner of stuff. This, the, London just always has these little holes and places that you can put so much adventure in. So. I'm sure they would disagree in Paris, but I find it much classier than the Louvre in Paris by night. It's in the Louvre that the, the prince is, is staying. Uh, Lynn, yeah. the, the cult of Mithras, is that showing up in Toulouse sometimes? Um, not in Cthulhu. Obviously, it's a, it's a, I'm not going to say which book, but it does feature in one of the Rivers of London books, so it will be getting a mention. Um, but I mean, it's, it's one of these fascinating things in the way that because we've got so much history, sometimes we treat it with almost contempt. Is the fact that for a very long time, the Mithraeum was discovered and it actually spent years as the roof of an understory, an underground car park. Um, they, they moved it out from where it was, plonked it on the roof of a car park and left it there, concreted bits of it in. Um, and then, of course, it was when the new building was developed on the site that the people developing the new building actually had it moved back and restored to its original position. And this is this weird thing sometimes with Britain, its history is because there's so much of it. It occasionally does get treated quite contemptuously. It's like, oh, Ooh. God, not more Roman remains. Yeah, just bung it over there on the car park. It's fine. It'll be OK. <laughs> Is it featured in the London Master Guide, uh, Shane? Um, it might be in the new revamp. We'll, we'll just see how all thing, things go. <laughs> but at least it, it's not going anywhere, allegedly. It's still, it will still be open after all of this uh, happened. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> so, well, this is the nice thing about the city you find. It's that thing of there's always something new to discover. 
And I find even after like 20 years, and it's not the sort of thing where, you know, your friends say, oh, if you try this new bar or this place, it's not like there's a new pop-up. It's like this place has been there since 1826 and you just haven't found it yet. And your friends have been going there every weekend and uh, and then we just mentioned it to you. That's very common in this. I always find about living in the city, it, it's almost like you always pass on something like that to someone else and then they yeah. pass it on to someone else. And, it, you know, I, it, it must have just started with one person just taking all, you yeah. know, all these people to these cool places because you can be like, oh, oh, I found this place, but, you know, someone else showed you it. <laughs> yeah, it's like everyone has their own London and, and you get to share it with your friends and discover new things every time. But your own version is so different to what everyone else's will be quite often. Yeah, I discovered recently, well, I mentioned Blackfriars and Vampire. I met over lunchtime a fellow player of Vampire the Masquerade because we, we were writing our background and we wanted them to connect. And he invited me to join him at the Blackfriar, which is a pub. I've never been there. It's a small pub. It's funny, actually, I was listening to an episode of another podcast with Leonardi when I arrived there. And I remember uh, she was mentioning some weird cocktails that you should not try mixed together from a, a yeah. time in your studies. I need to find which episode I was at and put a link. But yeah, the Blackfriar is this very, very old pub. And when you are in there, you could be centuries uh, in the past of uh, Lynn, uh, except those uh, fancy cocktails, which I, I don't remember the nature of, uh, what do you think is important to capture when writing or running a tabletop role-playing game set in London? Um, I'm, I'm just going to cheat here momentarily and check the document that we all added to because I don't want to steal Andrew's thunder. Um, oh, no. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's basically, I mean, the thing is that it's, it never sleeps. There is always somewhere for for your player characters to go to get information if you're running anything there. And it literally does not sleep. There are all people of all walks of life there that someone will be around no matter what stupid time of the day or night you're trying to, to set your scenario in or you're running about it. It really has this very, very bizarre sense of energy uh, to it when you go down there, which is unlike pretty much any other city in, in Britain. Just because I don't know whether it's just this sort of like created by the sheer mass of people moving around constantly. And sometimes it's also secret places, isn't it? I find there's as if you if you don't know the city and you want to get a drink at like four in the morning, you won't necessarily find that straight on the high street. But if you talk to a guy who's usually somebody who works in theatre, they will say, "Oh no, you want to go to the basement of this theatre around the corner there, and they'll they'll serve you." And it's the thing. Yeah, it's funny how the way public and private space work is very different from uh, the continent, uh, especially if you're a tabletop RPG practitioner. Uh, it's quite interesting how you start developing a knowledge of places where you can play. Like I played for a while at the South Bank Center and you are in the lobbies and you find other people who are having not exactly AA meetings, but different bunch of meetings there. And you're there in a corner in the, uh, I, I recommend the children soft play next to the library in the South Bank Center. It's very quiet, very nice if you arrive there soon enough. Then later we played in the Barbican Center and then we played in WeWork uh, uh, infrastructure. You, you, you develop this knowledge and you share it with other players. Well, oh, you can go there and play. It's somewhat quiet, except when there's a, a special event. 
Sean, what about you? What would you put in a in an actual adventure set in London? Um, what would I what I put in an adventure? Um, I I don't know. I think we've talked about it a few times, but I really like the intrigue in London. That you know, like cults, things like that, because you know we all like imagining that's there when you walk past. You know, if you see the little blue plaques talking about this happened in this house, you know, and like you were mentioning the the banker and Black, Blackfriars Bridge, you know, you almost want to actually have that happen for real rather than hear vague things about it. So I think that'd be um, something that I'd like to play, you know, demons, corruption, things like that. But I think uh, you mentioned a second about what, what I think is important to capture with um, writing about London and that I think, you know, I've never made a game before, but I think what was quite important to capture with London that it is its own character. Um, and it's basically the biggest and most interesting NPC that you'll ever run. You know, it can be powerful, it can be helpful, it can be vindictive, it can be horrible. And I think that it's a very powerful tool for, for games because it can you can shape that. And I don't think that many places can be as malleable. Yeah, because it doesn't have this grid like New York, so you, you it's it's very close and personal the way you engage with, with London. You you don't have that much space around you and the contrasts of places can be very, very strong as well. Uh the yeah, I think what's something I, I would really include in London, but it's because it's my thing. Uh it's a transport system, the underground, the buses, the taxi. I mean it's immediately very iconic. And then you put the river in the middle with its different crossing and uh, you're already quite a quite a bit of London uh, in there. Side note: I just found which interview that was. I was listening when I arrived at Black Friday. It was uh, from GMS Mag JMS Magazine. No GMS and uh, GAG. Uh, GMS Magazine. Uh, there's an excellent interview with uh, our dear Dr. Linardi here. I really recommend about verisimilitude versus realism when uh, running a role playing game. So. So yeah, but is there any verisimilitude you you would apply to London, uh, Lynn? You already answered, but um, well, I mean, people who heard me do it, I know I say this a lot in interviews, but it's true. You really don't have to look too hard to just find something interesting. That all you need to do is just give it the tiniest little twist, mm. and it will do what you need it to do in terms of your story. And the lie is always easier to sell if it's rooted in truth. Mm. You can get away with absolute murder. And because of London's history, because of the number of people, the types of people, where they've come from, you know, there is going to be something somewhere that will provide you with what you need for your game with only the tiniest, tiniest little tweak to make it your thing and give it the flavour that you need. I'm actually considering running uh, a, a game of Ghostbusters. I call it Ghostbusters LLP. Uh, which would be set in London. And uh, my idea for sort of the main villain is the the media, because it's a, a very old industry in London. I mean, we're talking, we're talking the positive side, uh, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Whitechapel murders or Jack the Ripper are kind of two faces of the same coin. I think when they're literal competing newspapers who would publish those stories, facing one another 
because you, you had this episodic nature of things being published in a newspaper, both Sherlock Holmes on one side and uh, the actual stories. There's the tabloid dimension of London and uh, is it Fleet Street where the, most of them are based? Yeah, it's work in London is interesting. I find you know if you if you would be, if I was running Nephilim through different times and ages in London, I could show how work changed in London from the industrialist ages to uh, yeah the uh, the, the, the media, which comments start to take over and, and then you can move into more digital banking things. Even just, you could do a, a story just with banking, actually, and insurance. Yeah. Uh, I recommend checking out the, the Lloyd's building, which is a fascinating building. Mm-hmm. And it's a fascinating business because it's an insurance company, which was started in a pub in, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the port of London. Uh, they still have the original or replica of the original benches they would use uh, to make deals of insuring boats and cargo. Uh, they got this big... So it's a very, very modern contemporary building, which could be like in Brazil. And within it, you've got a meeting room, which is the old meeting room they had. They dismantled and rebuilt on top. They got a, a bell from a French boat, from the French Revolution, the boat flew France at the French Revolution. It was taken over by the Britons and they ring the bell. And then you got the, the ledger of insurance. And in there, you got the pages from when the Titanic sunk. You, you're in this building and it's crazy the amount of stuff which are going on there while being still a very financially important building. So yeah, you could London with a specific business. So you maybe think, say, Ghostbusters in London, maybe, maybe think of uh, a city, it'd be very London-centric to say the whole the place riddled with ghosts, but your guy's being paid to get rid of them and not tell anyone about it because it'll have to <laughs> you, so. you mentioned uh, Fleet Street as well. There's a pub uh, just near there called the Old Cheshire, Cheshire Cheese, which is one of like the oldest pubs. And there's a, a like a stuffed parrot behind the bar. Um and the parrot, when it was alive, uh, you know, used to talk and became like a world famous celebrity. But journalists from Fleet Street would like ignore that pub because the parrot, they were worried that the parrot would pick up like journalistic secrets and stuff. So, you know, if you're running a Ghostbusters thing, they can talk to the parrot, see what he's found out. Yeah. So it's it's a literally mummified individual yeah, human yeah i think it's called um i think it's called poly i mean not very inventive for uh, <laughs> a, a parrot but um yeah it's just taxidermied behind the bar um and it's still there now great uh, okay i got a few questions uh that tom or engineer who's not technically with us right now but he asked in advance he was asking what would be a good system for running neverwhere Maybe Rivers of London soon in your friendly local game store? Yes, yeah, you know, they're not they're not that dissimilar in many ways, in many respects. You certainly could. Because um, we are aiming to pitch um, Rivers of London as a very fast and simple system for newcomers to gaming who might be coming into it because they've read the books and are interested in it. That's, you know, um, I mean, I have to say as well, Cogs, Cakes and Sword Sticks, you know, slightly biased, but... <laughs> It's very free form. It would give you the freedom to actually tell a story like that where, you know, characters are larger than life, have weird abilities, 
you know, and things, you know, the, 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 the name of their skill says as much about the personality as what you can actually do with it. And that, that to me kind of fits from my sort of point of view as far as Neverwhere is concerned. Andrew? Um, I'm, I'm sort of a big believer in you can make both systems fit if you tweak them a bit. Um, but uh, it, to a certain degree, it depends what London you want to play. So there is there are so many different ways. You know, things like fate would work great if you wanted to give each you know, aspects of cities of as, uh, of areas and districts to people. Um, but also anything that lets you just explore the place would be great. You know, savage worlds, world of darkness. Um, even D and D would get you around the city, and that's where the interesting part would be. I would say. Well, his second question is kind of linked. He was asking how if we had specific ways that we could kneel gam- gamify. A London RPG adventure, whatever that means. I think it's just bringing buildings to life and making them into a person, um, you know, and having those bits where it's that that connection between something that you know, um, you know, and just putting like like Lim was saying that little tiny twist on it. But I think in this case is is like the personification of things, and you know, being like that pub actually is this, you know. So I, I think. That'd be important. A lot what of genius, Loki. Well, sort of horrific whimsy. So it's whimsical, <laughs> but there's that strand of real darkness underneath it, particularly in Neverwhere, um, where let's face it, it starts with a family massacre. So you've got that. It, it seems that you know it's sort of like oh, it's it's very strange and enchanting, but it's going right back to some Grimm's fairy tales where there is that, that true nastiness underneath there that's giving it its, its edge. So it's not all cosy and comfortable. There is that real sharpness to it. I remember being terrified. I'm sorry, but I remember being uh, terrified of uh, Mr. Croup and Vandermar. They're yeah. awful. And they were, they were, how they were described was so little, but it was quite unsettling. So I think, yeah, macabre is the way. <laughs> Yeah, so I think it's the, the key is it's you can use any system you like. Pick the one you're most comfortable with, but look in the details of the system, the details of the setting, um, and that's what you can bring out. So anything you're comfortable with will work fine in London because then you can not worry about the system and you can get into the little details of the city and bring those in your setting. Ichifi in the chat room is making a very good recommendation, Liminal by Paul Michener. Yes, so, uh, very good. Uh, I haven't played it I yet, but I'd really like to. I believe he's got a specific London source book has come out for that recently, I think, as well. So, that, yeah, that's a really good. Cool. That's a nice segue for our next section dedicated to the future. Uh, Sean, uh, looking forward, what type of story of tabletop role-playing game supplement do you wish existed or are you planning to develop? <laughs> mm. So where's the weird one for me? Um, I'm not planning on developing anyone uh, anytime soon, but I think, you know, what I've been finding that um, as I've been doing the London Masters Guide is that I've got so much, like, awesome artwork and, you know, you do the stories and the settings and you're like, oh, that, that'd be quite cool. And, you know, there's nothing, uh, you know, for me game-wise other than that, but I'm like, oh... Maybe I should start talking to some game designers and let's figure something out. But, you know, nothing other than that, I'm afraid. Slippery slope. Slippery slope. I know. Uh, (laughs) I don't know where you could find game designers, especially interested in London. I have no no idea. 
Yeah, you'll be lucky to find one or maybe two. Uh, Andrew, you, you mentioned something as your project, Things You Wish Was, uh, yeah, available, uh, which is very interesting for me. Well, I, I was thinking it's because seeing these, um, these ideas of uh, YouTube comedy things with tube lines as people, um, I've been thinking for a while. I, would, I don't know if I'll ever get around to this, but again, where all the tube lines do actually have it, something like the Northern Line is full of ghosts, the Bakerloo Line is actually in the past and you're the people that have to sort out the problems that arise from that because to keep the tubes running and to keep the computers unaware and of course where they cross in the network even stranger things start happening so, or, the, or the elizabeth line is, is about to open or is it because yeah. maybe the other line are scheming to delay yeah. the opening of crossrail exactly but they've been you know I've, I've been looking at some of the things trying to pick strange weird things that all or each different line has got its own Odyssey to whether it's surreal or it's in the past or it's in the future. Or um, so the Bakerloo line is definitely steampunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Northern line gets referred to as the Camden uh, like coffin cattle or something like yeah. the Camden coffin. So you know that one immediately yeah. with the black aesthetic is you know there's definitely death or something in that. Or, or maybe but, the I, Northern line is conjointed twins because it's you know it's two lines yeah, and they're talking about separating them. Like it's running and gets the thing. Yeah, and and I must admit, having done Fall of London, it would be really interesting to do a Rise of London. And don't take that as an announcement, I don't think, because. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I've, I've had some ideas I'd like to do with that, and, and maybe, maybe so I've been nagging Modiphius to see if they'll let me uh, have a go at that. But uh, but yes, that's that's not actually happening necessarily. So don't take that as an announcement. But it's something I'd really like to do because I did really enjoy doing uh, Fall of London, and there's so much, even after you've flattened the city with the second inquisition there's so much um, left in the ruins you know london never falls entirely uh, it always comes back somehow so lynn i quote your answer in my little g-dog so to the question what story or type of table do you wish to existed you answered i think you know what my answer to this will be so what will this be like it's Rivers of London, isn't it? I mean, I, I've been wanting to do this as a role-playing game for many, many years now. And it just so happened that Ben uh, was up in Newcastle doing a book signing uh, for Lie Sleeping uh, at the old Emerson Chambers, uh, which is Waterston's bookstop, bookshop now. Um, I mean, I've been going in there ever since I've lived up here for mm, too many years. Um, so I... Very cheekily got, oh, I got myself there nice and early to make sure I was at the front of the queue. I had my business cards and everything ready. And I walked up to him, asked him to sign my book. He said, I have you ever fancied having a role playing game based on this? And he nearly had my hand off um, because it's something that Ben's been thinking about a long time. He's a gamer. Um, you know, there are various gaming jokes in the books if you read them. Uh, so, yes, it's, you know, it took a while. It took about 18 months to get everything sorted out and put together. Um and, you know, that's that's what we're working on now. Um, so I'm guiding it, you know, as well as my Cthulhu duties. Um, and the other one, obviously, I want to see is Cthulhu by Gaslight because it's a great setting for Call of Cthulhu. So he said that's those two are going to keep me out of busy, uh, out of mischief rather for quite a long time this year. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing both of them, actually. It's Rivers of London. I heard of it. I've seen a, a lot of people reading it on the tube. <laughs> that's how you, that's a, a good advertisement for your book when you see people uh, holding them in the tube. But uh, I, I, I not read, read them, but I'm listening to the audible version 
which is absolutely excellent. The, the main actor is uh, Mr. Holbrook Smith, I think. Oh, uh, Cobner. Um, I can't remember his surname. I'm terrible with names. Um, but Cop- I know um, I can't listen to audiobooks because I'm I'm not an auditory learner. I tend to tune them out. Um, but I know the number of people who said that he's superb doing doing the books. So I'm going to have to try and make an effort for those. Uh, I've they, almost they finished the second book. Yeah, I, I, they, Rivers of London was actually recommended to me by a mutual friend who's a gigantic Doctor Who fan who knew Ben's work from Doctor Who, who then recommended the books to me. So it was one of these things that was on my reading list for a while, and then I basically read all the ones that existed in a very short period of time with the, if I ever get the chance, I want this to be a role-playing game. So, you know, these things happen occasionally. Amazing. Uh, Yeah, so our final question what would you recommend to visit or to do in London if anyone is planning to visit us? Who wants to go first? I mean, I could go on for a while uh, with this one, but uh, you'll have to wait till the book's out for me to go on more. But I, I mean, say- as, as we come in clean, uh, I need to make clear to, yeah, the reason this panel exists is to promote Sean's London Master Guide in part. <laughs> But I don't like to make straight promotions, so I, I made up a panel around it. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> um, no, I'd say, um, you know, there's so many different things to do in London. Uh, you know, you could be here all day listening to stuff. But I think um, one of my favourite places in London um, is St. Paul's. And not just going in St. Paul's. At the very top of St. Paul's, there's something called the Whispering Gallery. Um, and basically what it is, is it's at the top of the dome after you go all this, the flight of stairs. It's like the curvature of the dome. And you can sit on the other side of the room and whisper and the person, it'll go around and, you, and you, it's like 30 metres away or something. So you can pass like whispers around and it's it's quite strange, uh, but it's quite cool because it, it's one of those things you're like, that shouldn't, is that real? Should it work? But I think that's a really good like uh, thing to go and check out because I think that inspired quite a lot of others around there and it was completely by accident. The, the chat room is complaining that uh, we had to wait till the end of the episode to finally have a Doctor Who reference. I mean, th- there's Uh-oh. just so many things. We could talk about Charles Dickens as well. There's too much stuff in London. Huh? Well, I do have the, I, with a name I was really pleased with, but I, I have written a Doctor Who adventure that hopefully may be on the, on the list for Cubicle 7 at some point. So <laughs> there may be that set in London um, with buried secrets and things. So... Uh, uh, there may be some more on that, so, but uh, but I don't know where they are with that one. I don't, again, don't treat that as an announcement. There's not many. Uh, I don't know what you call that police police box uh, remaining in London. I think I've well, seen one. If you know the right the place to go, Earl's Court. in Earl's Court, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was one sitting there. Uh, I don't know if it ever used to be a real one or if it's somehow left there for Doctor Who. But um, I don't know how many of them there were in the first place. To be honest. <laughs> Originally, but, but we uh, used the one at Earl's Court for the uh, the Doctor Who LARP that we did yeah. 18 years ago. We all started off there and then mm. split off in different directions and had Autons and Cybermen. We didn't do Daleks in London because the Dalek was heavy yeah. and you needed a very flat surface for it. It mm. was flat pack. We could have taken it, but, you know. Yeah. yeah. 
I do remember a couple of guys taking a Dalek to a convention, but they got out of um, one of their fairs because one of them stayed in the Dalek, and nobody went, went questioned if anyone was in that when they were taking it on the train. Apparently. <laughs> so, Andrew, besides that, what what would be the the place you recommend to visit or the things to do in London? Again, it's like the same. There is so much to keep you occupied. I've done plenty of times. I've taken people for little tours around my theatre when they've come to visit because there is so much. Um, there's little bits and pieces in the theatre where you can see how they built the roof and, and things. It's a, it's a gorgeous building. There's so much history to that. But my general one is, is, poss is, is cheaper and possibly slightly romantic. Is I always tell people to go and cross Waterloo Bridge uh, at night. It's uh, it's on the end of the it takes you from the end of the Strand to the uh, to Waterloo Station, and it's quite a long bridge and it's a very open one. And when you cross that, you can see most of the South Bank. You can see the London Eye. You can see loads of the buildings lit up. And I think it's one of the best views in London that you can do from ground level. Um, it does, of course doesn't cost you anything. You just walk across the bridge. People are doing that all the time, and it's a wide enough payment to stop at, stop and look. But if uh, if Any sort of, if you want a romantic walk in London, it's one of my favorites. So Waterloo Bridge, it's double, right? You can be on the side of South Bank Centre or on the side of the the Parliament and the London Eye. So you, you need to, yeah. There's, Which uh, side? <laughs> the one I'm thinking of is just it's just the one road that goes over the whole thing. Um, so it's you can go. It's the Parliament side. Yeah, I think, and it's the one that the you know Bank. the iconic shot of the Daleks rolling into London is over Westminster Bridge. But you can, yeah, but you can go from any, um, I mean, I think you'll get the similar view from pretty much any bridge of London. Um, if you cross over, so yes, say Westminster Bridge gives you the House of Parliament, Waterloo ones, some of the South Bank. Uh, but cross one, because it's interesting to see the size of the Thames and, and see that river that cuts through the city. Uh, it's, yeah, ideally do it in, in summer because it gets very cold. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's still, you know, with, with the city lit up around you, it's, it's one of the best views, I think. And while you are there, you can say a prayer to Mama Thames. Yes, it's true. Lynn, uh, what what are your new recommendations? Um, the area around UCL, so just up from King's Cross, basically. Um, so you've got the Petrie Museum, which is free and awesome. It's very old-fashioned little museum tucked into UCL. Um, and they don't mind strange people going in, sitting on the floor and translating um, the stilly in the middle of the school holidays, um, which was great fun. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's lots of cool stuff in glass cabinets, like a really old fashioned museum, which is brilliant. So if you've got a Victorian game and you want to bring mummies and Egyptology and, and goodness knows what into it, it's a great place to go for research. Um, obviously you've got Russell Square, not too far away. You've got the British Museum. You've got the Atlantis bookshop. You've got the welcome collection, which often gets overlooked Uh, and that has some fantastic displays in it. They have a, a rotating um, program of main exhibitions on the ground floor, but you've got the reading room, which is, is spectacular, and you've got some sort of like standard exhibitions that are there on all the time, which are just fascinating to go and have a look at, because, again, you'll see really weird and wonderful things, because Henry Welcome collected random stuff from all over the world, mostly medically related, but not necessarily. Um, and it really is an absolute treasure trove of ideas if you get the chance to go in there. And it has two really good cafes as well and a fantastic bookshop. Yeah, there's also, I think first you see, I think they got another mummy there of one of the, a famous scientists or philosopher. 
Oh, oh Jeremy, where's Jeremy Bentham? Is he at UCL? I think so. Yeah, that's, I think that's him. Yeah, Victorians and yeah, in London we got a thing about mummies, I guess. So that's that's all. <laughs> Uh, I recommend uh, not, not too far from here, uh, London Bridge. There's the what is it called? Um, the surgery hall. So you know when you see uh, often a Frankenstein movie, for instance, you see the the the, the operating room, which is a, an auditorium. At the same time, it's all wood and and weird like that. They, they got one preserved there, which you can visit. Uh, but otherwise, my recommendation is slightly different, like less historic but definitely uh, taking you somewhere different. I really enjoyed walking around the Barbican, which is a huge modernist project in the city of London. Uh, City of London, because in the middle of London, we got something called the City of London. And the London is not the City of London, and the City of London is not part of London. There are interesting YouTube videos which will explain you how you could become the Lord Mayor of the City of London, and that's really weird. You need to be a sheriff first. Really weird. So it's not democratic. So it, uh, anyway, but yeah, the Barbican in there, uh, the, it's a, a post-war big development, which is uh, truly amazing. Uh, it's flooding with good intentions. I find as an architect, there was a lot of ideas which were well-intended, but didn't quite work, but the place is still... Truly, truly amazing. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. So anyone else has anything to add about London that we missed? I'm going to check the chat room in the meantime. We, we could quite get a lot we could talk about. Four or five I think. <laughs> There's just too much. Uh, there, there's, there is so much. We, we could take decade yeah. by decade and uh, explore London. Yeah, it's like I found with, and you, I think Sean's probably found this as well. When I was doing the London source book for Victoriana, I realized very quickly there was no way on earth I was going to get everything into this. So I focused on, I'm just going to create the bones of this city and the districts and then let other people fill in more stuff and bits and pieces in between because I'm just trying to give people a framework um, because you just can't fit it into one book. You know, yeah, imagine you, get every it's hard to do a guidebook. <laughs> yeah. I am so glad I'm not writing one. So, <laughs> I, I mean, it's easy because you will fill out the word count. You, you've got no, if they say, oh, we want, you know, a, a 600 page book on this, you can go, yeah, fine, no problem. Um, I, I can get it's that just down. how deep down the rabbit hole you go because yeah. I, like, I could literally write this for a hundred years. And, <laughs> and then we change like everything like we're doing. You do another one each. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, like it's tough to visit the Churchill War Room. You can still visit it. It's still there. Anyway, plugs and where to find you, each of you. Please, Lynn, what do we have left to plug and where can people find you? Well, I think I've, I've managed quite well, plug quite a lot of stuff tonight, actually. Um, if people want to find me, I am on Twitter at Cogs and Cakes. Great. Sean. Where can people find you and what? Uh, anything left to plug? I mean, as Lynn said, I think we've plugged what uh, you know I've got going in the pipeline. But uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean of the Hunt, where I just kind of make daft jokes about D and D and book updates, basically. Um, but yeah, that's where you can find me. Well, the, the London Master Guide started as a joke, right? Yeah, it's kind of a, an annoying habit that I have. I like making puns, and then I was like, oh, that's a thing. 
Um, and then here we are. <laughs> yeah. Andrew. Oh, well, um, I think I've got a Twitter account, but I can never remember where I put it. I'm really useless at updating those things. Um, I do some gaming stuff as Corona Design, um, but uh, usually my work's all over the place, with uh, mostly with Modifius at the moment, with Fall of London. Check it out. Very worth And uh, And Dune is going to be amazing. Um, I'm so blown away by everything I've seen for what my rights and people have come up with. I so want to talk about it, but I can't. But it's on the way and it's going to be amazing. Yeah, for those who don't know Andy, he is one of the sweetest and most prolific authors in gaming. Oh, and, uh, yeah. Although my, my favourite thing was a friend of mine said, uh, was the most prolific author you've never heard of. Oh. <laughs> which is what I want. Which is what I want Carl to my time. Can, but, someone uh, say so, can someone say something nice about Sean because it's getting awkward? His amazing moustache and generally lovely. <laughs> there was a fly. I wasn't. I was literally a fly going around. I wasn't. I wasn't just being stoic. Uh, but thank you. The uh, moustache yeah. is just a recent coronavirus experiment. Um, so yeah. I'm just go and get this catch of, up. By the end of quarantine, I expect to see the full handlebar with waxed ends and curls and everything. You know. <laughs> The, I mean, on, on, on episode two of our 100-part series about London, uh, I'll, I'll have one. <laughs> I think it's coming back into fashion, probably after after all of this. A lot of stuff are going to come back into fashion. Thanks, guys. This is the you know affirmation I didn't know I needed. <laughs> so did we do everyone? We, we did, right? Did we? It's not a joke. I'm just confused and tired today. Uh, so, yeah, uh, just to say, uh, Modifius was... And know some London-based publisher, so yeah, hey, go, yeah. go check Modifius' work. They know what they're talking about when it, they're talking about London, at least. So, yeah. thank you so much to the RPG Academy for hosting this stream. It should have been re-hosted by the Rollist's own Twitch stream, so go check it out. Uh, the Rollist is, we're having a Café Rollist every two days during the week, usually Monday, Wednesday, uh, Friday, uh, not this Monday because it's Easter. Uh, but yeah, I'm having an informal chat with whoever is willing to. Uh, a lot of people organize, organizing online convention. That's a big thing nowadays. So, uh, go check them out. Uh, subscribe uh, on the Twitching. Follow. Follow is the right word. Do follow the RPG Academy as well. Please also, we, uh, we do all of that out of love for the love for the hobby, but we do have expense. And having any kind of financial support to the RPG Academy via Patreon or to the release podcast via Patreon helps us to do more stuff. Uh, because this way we don't, we still run out of money, but we have spent more. Uh, we spend part of your money in doing things, going to conventions, investing in better internet and better microphone and this sort of things. Uh, the release podcast is our regular show, the sh uh, probably London based show of Tabletop RPG fans across the channel, the pond, and beyond. Uh, this was Kaloum. Uh, thank you so much for listening to us. Please go check the work of all my amazing guests. And uh, in the meantime, I'll see you. Uh, have good games. I think the next one might be about TikTok or something like that. Because we, we're crazy at the release prison. We're going to have a cool episode about uh, TikTok in Tabletop or role-playing games. And if it's not this one, it's going to be the next one or something like that. Thank you so much, Andrew, Lynn, and Sean. Thank you very and much. Very much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this panel by The Rollist Present, or spin-off show 
derived from the Rollist podcast. The Rollist presents aims to showcase the tabletop RPG industry and community across Europe through panels held on Twitch or at live events. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to see more, or if you would like us to attend or even organize more live events, your support would help me do just that. First of all, there's Patreon. Patreon is an online platform allowing individuals like you and me to support podcasters, artists and game designers via small but regular donations. In our case, the donations are limited to a single one per month. You set the amount and even a single pound goes a long way in encouraging me to continue producing all our shows and events. Actually, the equipment I used to record panels at live events was financed in part by Rollists like you who already support the show via Patreon. Doing so will grant you access to our modest bonus show, Café Rollist, the caffeinated RPG break. Our main shows do not include any advertising and they will all remain available for free. But I do have expenses, producing the show, organizing or attending events. Any kind of support allows me not only to continue, but to do more, like travel to a convention or game shop near you, in the UK or across the channel and maybe the pond one day. If you cannot afford to support the Rollist financially, it's totally fine. What I value the most is having you as a listener. And there are many other means to support the show. You can subscribe via Apple Podcasts or any podcast player, Spotify, Stitcher, Podchaser, Podbean. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or just a five-star rating without any text. It really helps to have the show noticed by more listeners. You can also be a huge help through recommending the show to friends online, in your gaming groups or at your local RPG club. And never hesitate to message me with your thoughts via email, Facebook or Twitter. I am always happy to interact with you all. This is why I'm doing this show. Finally, we have a monthly newsletter that you can join to stay updated about our releases or upcoming episodes and events. Just click the description of this episode and you will find a link to this newsletter. This was Kaloum for The Rollist. Thanks for listening to this episode all the way to the end. And remember, you are The Rollist. <laughs>